Hello and welcome to this week's Hay Festival podcast. For this series, we've asked some of our regular Hay interviewers to choose their own personal Hay moments from our archive. These might be interviews they have done, they have seen, or perhaps the interview they wish they had done themselves. This week, it's the turn of broadcast journalist Georgina Godwin. Georgina was born and brought up in Zimbabwe, where she became well known for her work in the Zimbabwe media as a primetime host on radio and television, and was part of the team which started the first independent radio station. This was shut soon after by presidential decree. The broadcasters were declared enemies of the state, and Georgina relocated to London, where she continued to broadcast to Zimbabwe. Georgina is chair of Literary Events Worldwide, the voice of the British Council Arts podcast and books editor for Monocle 24 and presenter of Meet the Writers. Hello, I'm Georgina Godwin and I'm a regular chair at Hay. I've been involved with the festival for over a decade. I've been asked to identify one of my own most memorable events at Hay. Well, over the years, I've been incredibly fortunate to interview hundreds of authors. But the one that stands out for me is children's writer and illustrator Judith Carr. I grew up in Zimbabwe, the youngest by some way of three children, and in 1978 the country was immersed in a war of independence. I was 11 years old when the news came that my older sister, Jane, had been killed accidentally by the Rhodesian army. One of the things that helped me through that dreadful time was my sister's dog-eared copy of When Hitler Stole Pink Rabbit by Judith Carr. The book fictionalises Judith's own flight from Berlin in the 30s and her itinerant childhood in Europe with her Jewish family. The book was given to my sister by our parents who'd inscribed it and I know that she treasured it. Many years later, my brother and I discovered that my father was in fact a Polish Jew who travelled to Britain to learn English for the summer prior to the war breaking out and had never been able to return home. His family were interned in Treblinka and didn't survive World War II. He and my English mother married and reinvented themselves on the other side of the world and giving this book to their children was one way that they tried to prepare us for the information which they must have known could not stay hidden forever. When I first interviewed Judith on the radio a year or so before the Hay event, I told her that story, and she held my hand as we both wept. She insisted on signing the book, which now has her name in it, as well as my sister's. She became a dear friend, and I miss her terribly. You finally ended up in England with your family. You went to school in England yes. uh, and, and then went on. What did you, what did you study? Uh, art. Uh, I went to art school eventually after the war. You couldn't do anything during the war. You had to do something more useful. Um, yes, well, that was the thing. Um, I, had, uh, I had to have a scholarship because we had absolutely no money. And the only scholarship I could get uh, because I wasn't British-born, was uh, what was called a trade scholarship, which meant you had to have uh, a job uh, one or two days a week uh, doing your trade, which in my case was designing textiles. And so when I got to art school, a nice tutor who'd helped me with all this said, well, what trade are you going to do at art school? You don't want to do textile design, don't you? Why don't you do book illustration, which is what he taught? 
And I said, well, I don't really want to do a book illustration. I, I just need to learn to draw from life. And he said, oh, well, that's all right. Um, just sign on in book illustration every morning and then go and do whatever you like, which you couldn't do now. Uh, and so that's what I did. And it was absolutely fine until my last term when some idiot decided that we must all get a diploma and that for this diploma we had to have a show of our work and write a thesis on our subject. Uh, well, I hadn't done any illustrations and uh, I, I sort of tried to do a few and then I wrote this thesis which was very tactless really because I said that um, there's no such thing as illustration to justify myself. Um, it's, uh, it's all just drawing. And I said, look at Picasso, because Picasso had just done a wonderful uh, book of illustrations to a um, uh, book of uh, uh, natural creatures, I've forgotten. A mm -hmm. famous man whose name I've forgotten. And that didn't go down very well. And so I failed. And uh, I, I've passed exams in things like history, of which I know nothing. It's the only thing I've ever failed in is book illustration. <laughs> <laughs> who here has read The Tiger Who Came to Tea? Well, Gosh. <laughs> so can I just tell you that that was illustrated by somebody who failed? <laughs> Judith, how did you come to write and illustrate The Tiger Who Came to Tea? Oh, well, it was just a, a, a bedtime story I uh, used to tell my daughter. And um, I told her quite a number of different stories, but um, she only wanted that one, uh, which I, I thought was a bit rude, because I thought some of the others were perfectly all right. Um, but she, she was so bossy, and she used to say, Talk the tiger. And so I told her that one. And uh, then I told it to my son. And uh, uh, I, I, I didn't work when they were little because I was busy looking after them. And when they were both at school and staying to lunch at school, which is the great moment because then you have from 9 o'clock in the morning till 3 o'clock in the afternoon and you can do some work. And I thought, well, what'll I do now? And I thought, as I knew this terrible story about the tiger, word for word, because I told it so many times, I thought I'll see if I can make it into a picture book. Where did it come from originally? Uh, it just came from seeing tigers in the zoo and my husband being out a lot and wishing somebody would come. And so, well, why not a tiger? It seemed a good idea. They were so beautiful, and uh, I, I think my daughter thought it would be nice to stroke him, and me too. So, but he would be hungry, you see, being a tiger. So uh, it's worked out. It certainly did. Yes. <laughs> Uh, now, of course, real cats, much smaller cats. You've yes. always had cats. Has anybody here got a cat? Are they naughty? Well, you had a very naughty cat. Tell us about Mog. 
Uh, well, Rob, Rob wasn't naughty. She was just the way all cats are, in that they, um, they do their own thing. And um, uh, yes, well, I'd never had a cat, you see. I'd always wanted a cat, but moving about from country to country, you can't have a cat or anything. And so uh, my husband loved cats as well. He'd always had cats. So as soon we got what a cat needs, which is a house and a garden. I mean, a cat wouldn't really consider living in a flat or anything like that. So as soon as we got that, we got this cat. And we called it Mog. And as I'd never had a cat, I was totally staggered by what they're like. I mean, they're so weird, the things they do. Uh, and so I thought I'd just make a book about all the things that the cat did. And like, you know, this business of starting to wash their leg and then they think of something and they just sit with it up and forget about washing the rest of it. All those funny things. But I knew that uh, something had to happen. And I, I said to Tom, of course, I know something will have to happen in this story. And he was deep in a strip. And he just said, oh, let her catch a burglar. So that's what I did. So Mog caught a burglar, which is the only thing no cat of ours has ever done. <laughs> I've been asked to identify an inspirational, thoughtful or entertaining event that I've seen at Hay. Well, one contained all of those elements, and I even remember the exact date. It was the 28th of May 2014, the day that Maya Angelou died, and the speaker was her great friend, Toni Morrison. Toni was in conversation with Razia Iqbal, who's such a talented and experienced interviewer, and the session, though tinged with sadness about Angelou, was joyful and inspiring, full of laughter and deep insights. Before Barack Obama was in the White House, Morrison had been asked to write about him, but instead she chose to write to him in a published letter. He rang to thank her and asked if she could send the original to him, but... He couldn't remember his own address. He also told her that her book Song of Solomon had taught him how to be, which sent me scurrying to the bookshop afterwards. The book was cited by the Swedish Academy in awarding Morrison the 1993 Nobel Prize in Literature. The Academy, incidentally, she says, gives the very best party which goes on for days. Well, this event felt like a party too, a wonderful, warm gathering of people basking in the light of an extraordinary woman. I'd like to start by talking about definitions, how you have been defined and how you define yourself. I, I, I know it probably matters less now, but when you first started out writing, you quite consciously wanted to define yourself as an African-American woman writer. Why was that? Those days, the early days, when I began to write, I got compliments from other writers about the value and the beauty, perhaps, of the book. And... Uh, in order to elevate my reputation, I remember being at an author's event, and I think it was Dr. Rowe or somebody who said, Toni Morrison is a wonderful writer. 
I don't think of her as a woman writer. I don't think of her as an African-American writer. I think of her as, and he paused, and I said, a white male writer. (laughs) 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 So the categories that we were being put in. So I claimed it. Yes, I am a black woman writer, uh, whatever that means. As I continued writing, the problem became the gaze, the white gaze, that was always present in so many books by African Americans. Men on the whole, people like James Baldwin, Richard Wright, Ralph Ellison. Yes, they were not writing to me. And I always used the title of Ralph Ellison's book, which I love, by the way. This is an extraordinary book. But the title set me back a little because it was The Invisible Man. And I thought, invisible to whom? To them, you know. So it was like the, even the best of the slave narratives were addressed to uh, the readers were always assumed to be white people and not black people. So I was determined not to do that. Where, where did that certainty come from that, that you felt so rooted in the perspective that you wanted to write from before you even articulated the, the notion of the white gaze and not being interested in the white gaze? Well, there were two things. One was the, the kinds of books being written at that time in the late 60s by black men, uh, not the big novelists, but, you know... The, the uh, revolutionaries. It was always to the man, you know, screw the man <laughs> or whatever. And I was, you know, black is beautiful. Uh, and I was saying, what? <laughs> What's that about? Wait a minute. Before we get on the black is beautiful thing, may I remind you of what it was like before when it was not beautiful when it was lethal to consider yourself ugly, not human, other. And so the bluest eye was my answer in quotes to that sudden leap into perfection and power and so on, as though there was no history that preceded it. So this was your first novel written when you were an editor at Random House in the 1970s. And uh, uh, the the, the impulse was not just the historical context, but a particular incident, an anecdote, a friend of yours who wanted blue eyes, an African-American girl who wanted blue eyes. Two things happened. I was walking along with her. her name was Eunice. We were very close, schoolgirls, 10 or 11, I think. And we were discussing whether God existed. And I said, he did, of course. And she said, no, no, there's no God. And I asked her how she knew. And she said, I've been praying for blue eyes for two years. And I don't have them. <laughs> what I remember is looking at her. She was very dark, very, you know, like high cheekbones. I don't know. The point is I was young enough to be in the category when you're 10, people are cute or not cute. 
But when I looked at her, I thought two things. If he had answered her prayers, she would, it would be grotesque. She would look awful. And also, I recognized beauty for the first time. That she was really beautiful. And that was not a 10, 12-year-old word in connection with, you know, your girlfriend or anything. And so when I began The Bluest Eye, I used that anecdote in what she must have been thinking, how desperate she was to be other, to be white, or to be have some characteristic that would set her apart. Was there also a sense that you wanted to write a story that didn't exist, that there was a silence of <laughs> yeah. that perspective? Oh, yeah. I wanted to read that book, and I couldn't find it. I thought maybe if I looked hard enough, somebody had written a story about those things and about uh, to put a young black child on, in center stage without making fun of her. She's not topsy, she's not any of these other, you know, sort of cliche things. And I thought somebody probably was writing that book or would write it, no one did. And I was eager, eager to read it. And I didn't think I could read it unless I wrote it. And it was, and all my books have been like that, they're reading experiences for me as well as writing. And, and how did you manage to write it being an editor, having a full-time job as an editor of books, including books by black writers? You know, we multitask. <laughs> <laughs> I am, I have two children. I'm in New York City. I had left graduate school many years ago, taught at universities, uh, went other places and finally landed this job at Random House. But still, there was this other thing that I wanted to do. So I sort of published it. This sounds silly, but it was sort of secret. <laughs> I didn't tell anybody at the publishing house that I had written this book. Did you tell anyone at all? No, Did you I, tell friends no, that you were writing? No. I had a friend who was an editor at Holt. And he had published a book by someone whom I knew who had actually been a student of mine. He wrote Man-Child in the Promised Land. And he said, why don't you give your manuscript too? And I did. Well, I had sent it around a little bit, and I got 12 rejections. Um, some were letters, some were just little postcards, but no. So when I gave it to this man, uh, it was a... I think he didn't... I don't know if he liked it, but there were... African-American writers were just coming along, so he took it. I didn't tell anybody at Random House. On the first edition, I uh, wrote the flaps, which are like three sentences. Uh, my bio is not there. Uh, and I put on the jacket, this is really bad news, <laughs> <laughs> the first page of the book, which I thought, well, I've written this book. If you look at it in the bookstore, you start reading it on the cover. I thought that was very clever. <laughs> but it doesn't display. I mean, you can't see it from afar. <laughs> so I've not done that since. But that was <laughs> a little bit of a, of a secret. And then at random, when they, and they didn't hire me to be a writer. They hired me to be an editor. So I was you know, doing two things. So they suggested I talk to 
some people at Knopf to see whether I wanted to work there. And I remember uh, the man who is my editor now saying, look, if you're going to work at Knopf as an editor, I will be, have to be able to fire you. I said, uh-huh. And he said, but if you work at Knopf as a writer, I will take you on. So it's worked out. I, I, um, I did quite a lot of research for this interview. <laughs> um, one of the things I found out was that the New York Times book review didn't give The Bluest Eye a particularly good review. I think it was kind of okay. I don't think they thought it was great. Now they describe you as the closest thing America has to a national writer. I had one good review from John Leonard, and it wasn't in the New York Times. The New York Times, I think one of them said, I think she writes this way just to avoid cliché. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> but more demoralizing than that was the reception I got from African-American critics who did not like the book at all. It was, you know, incest and children. I mean, they were horrified by it and let me know it. And how, how, did, how did that make you feel, given that you were quite consciously defining yourself as writing out of that experience? I think it's been so long. I think I was... I didn't anticipate the venom... I thought they probably would be upset because I was talking about Africa, us in a you know, very real, visceral way. And it wasn't a happy story. It wasn't, oh, I was a slave and then I got free and here I am. Or, oh, I was a... <laughs> and then I, you know. So I thought that. And it was very, it was feminine too, you see. It wasn't a man writing about these things. So I anticipated hostility, but I didn't know how deep and how profoundly they hated the idea of it. You know, they didn't even think about whether it was well-written. It was about something that was, you know, embarrassing, shameful, etc. Your first three books, The Bluest Eye, Sula, Song of Solomon, n none of them have any white characters in them at all. The, the white world is there, it's a, it's a presence, it's an oppression, if mm -hmm. you like. I, I wonder if I can take you back to your childhood to try and understand where that perspective comes from. You, you grew up in, in Lorain, Ohio, and experienced institutionalized segregation as a child. Where did your sense of your identity as an African-American girl come from? Did it come more from your father, your mother, your grandparents? Because all of them had different perspectives on the white That's world, true. didn't they? Well, you know, I wasn't... I didn't experience a black neighborhood or segregation at all when I was a child. I lived in Lorraine, Ohio, which was a steel town. And it was full of immigrants, people from Poland and Mexico. There were black people who came down from Canada who had escaped up there. So it was very mixed. There was one high school. There was no segregation because there was only one high school. And everybody was pretty poor. 
and you know the Tershaks lived next door, and they gave my mother recipes for cabbage, rolled cabbage, and she gave them. You know, it was really very different in the 30s, in that northern part of Ohio. It wasn't like that in the south. But as one notices that on Sunday, you see the divisions. There were like four black churches, nine Catholic churches, you know, the Polish one, the Czech one, the this, the Italians. The, and then there were the Protestants. There were like two or three. Of the, so on Sundays, we went to our specific ethnic things. But otherwise, it was fully exchanged. But to really answer the question about the feeling, it was very much family-oriented because it was such a family of storytelling and singing that it, it was inescapable. And it was participatory. That is to say, as a child, I had to retell those stories to other adults. Same story over and over again. But I was allowed to edit it, me and my sister. You could change it a little bit. You could recite it a little bit. But you were very much involved in that process of telling these stories that were pretty much horror stories <laughs> about life as an Amer African American. I mean, they were uh, powerful and highly metaphorical, but that's really what was at the bottom of it. Well, I first came to Hay with my brother, Peter, who's an author. He's written five books, and three of them, Mukiwa, When a Crocodile Eats the Sun, and The Fear, are memoirs of our lives in Zimbabwe, where we were born and grew up and lived as adults for a time, before, in separate incidents, being declared enemies of the state for our media work highlighting the abuses there. I love the idea of one of the characters in a book interviewing the author, and I'd so enjoy quizzing my big brother on his description of me and the rest of our family. He's appeared many times at Hay, and although his sessions with Michael Burke and Richard E. Grant are entertaining, and I'd urge you to listen to them too, it's the event at Story Moja Hay in Nairobi, Kenya, that stands out because of what happened. It was September 2013, and Peter was appearing with a distinguished panel of African academics and journalists discussing his latest book, The Fear, subtitled, somewhat prematurely, The Last Days of Robert Mugabe. The book tells of a journey we took back to the country together to report on post-election violence, which was rampant. During the session, Peter refers to gunfire and explosions that can be heard in the background. This was, of course the terrorist attack on Westgate Mall, in which over 70 people were killed and another 200 wounded. After Peter's session was over, it became clear what was going on and the festival was abandoned and all participants taken to safety. An open letter to Lindy Cook, who was then the director of Hay, from an author, says, Even in the time of crisis, under immense stress, you made sure we were OK. And Lindy, in turn, paid tribute to Peter, saying that in the circumstances he was more than her rock. He was titanium. A festival participant, the Ghanaian former diplomat and poet Professor Kofi Awonuo, was killed in the attack. But Hayes' events around the world continue. There are currently seven globally, with an additional four Hay forums. And I have no doubt that whatever happens the brand will continue to prosper. Here's my brother. 
but he doesn't talk about me. We're going to change that soon. I feel that when I'm talking to an audience here in Kenya, I have a completely different way of talking to you than if I were talking to an audience in America or Britain or elsewhere, because you know so much already about this subject. And indeed, I was born and grew up and spent most of my life in Zimbabwe, but when I come to Kenya, I feel like Kenya is oddly about the most similar country to Zimbabwe. And I feel very much at home here. I feel like there's something about the cadences and rhythms and even your, your, your whole political history, the, 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 the British colonial period, white settlers, you know, the big man syndrome, you've, you've had your political violence. You've, it's weird, it's like going to a, a, a sort of parallel but alternate universe. Um, so I know that a lot of what I speak of here will be eerily familiar to you. And so what I propose to do before we open it up as described to our eminent panelists is that what I feel gets lost in all of this as the political wheel turns and things carry on, both in Zimbabwe and indeed in Kenya, what can get lost in all of this is the humanity of the victims themselves. Um, I hate that word, victims, but um, it'll have to do just for now. I'll, I'll address it later. That as we move on, in your case, through the ICC and one thing or another, in our case, we never signed the Rome Statute, so there's hasn't been a single prosecution, not one, for, for our own post-election violence. Um, uh, so what, what gets lost in subsequent elections and subsequent political deals is this group of people who were killed and tortured and traumatized and are left there somehow as though on the scrap heap of history. So it's a fairly modest um, aim. I just want to read you uh, because you all know what happened in Zimbabwe. You, you're very familiar with that terrain. I'm not going to bore you with that. We can, in later times and questions, things we can, we can go over that. I want to just remind you of what post-election violence, these sort of acronyms can tend to drain the humanity out of things if we're not careful. What post-election violence actually looks like, um, smells like, to the, people, to the people involved. Just let me set the scene. If you remember, <clears throat> the Zimbabwe that immediately preceded the elections in 2008 that went so horribly wrong. Um, this was uh, a Zimbabwe which once enjoyed the highest standard of living in Africa, but now their money is nearly worthless, halving in value every 24 hours. Only 6% of workers have jobs. Their incomes have shrunk to pre-1950 levels. They are starving, their schools are closed, their hospitals collapsed. Their life expectancy has crashed from 60 to 36. They have the world's highest ratio of orphans. They are officially the unhappiest people on earth, and they are fleeing the shattered country in their millions, an exodus of up to half the population. This was the background to those elections. And in a sense, it was uh, little surprise that uh, in our elect electoral system, which is heavily massaged and often rigged and is not like other elections, that there was a, there was a miscalculation <clears throat> and Robert Mugabe failed to get more than the requisite 50% on that first round of elections. And there was a kind of intoxicating moment. The results weren't announced, but the very fact that they weren't announced indicated that something was terribly wrong. And there was an intoxicating window. It was about three weeks, I suppose, in all, where it actually looked like Robert Mugabe might concede, or might 
might just stand aside and let Zimbabwe's future begin. Uh, and in that window, I went back to Zimbabwe somewhat uh, trepidatiously because I never quite know what my status is there. It changes from time to time. I've been thrown out at various times. I went back to, uh, to write a story to cover this, this particular period. <clears throat> Instead, what happened was, as we now know, that a second, we went to a second round. And before that second round happened, uh, we started seeing um, a terrible, uh, uh, we, we started seeing torture on an industrial scale. But the, the thing about history is that it, it's always told in retrospect. It has this sort of spurious air of inevitability about it, that you know in your own lives when you live through it that you don't, that these things aren't obvious. You don't know what's happening. So for example, we didn't even know what we were seeing, um, what we were seeing in, in Zimbabwe as it started, we didn't understand what we were seeing. Um, we saw people coming in wheelbarrows, people weren't allowed to come in from the rural areas and go to hospitals and things. And I, we, I started talking to, the, to, to all the human rights workers who were desperately trying to get news. And they started to hear a phrase, I started to hear a phrase bandied around called smart genocide, a grotesque science that Mugabe is apparently honing. There's no need to directly kill hundreds of thousands if you can select and kill the right few thousand. Is this really a refining of genocide? As Stanislaw Lech, a Polish-Jewish poet, once wondered, is it progress if a cannibal uses a knife and fork? Some call what is happening here politicide. As genocide is an attempt to wipe out an ethnic group, so politicide is the practice of wiping out an entire political movement. And Robert Mugabe had done this before, of course, when he shattered Zapu by sicking his troops on their office bearers during Gukura Hundi in the early 1980s. And now the murders here are accompanied by torture and rape on an industrial scale, committed on a catch and release basis. When those who survive terribly injured limp home or are carried or pushed in wheelbarrows or on the backs of pickup trucks, they act like human billboards advertising the appalling consequences of opposition to the tyranny, bearing their gruesome political stigmata. And in their home communities, their return causes ripples of anxiety to spread. The people have given this time of violence and suffering its own name, which I hear for the first time tonight. They are calling it Chidudu. It means simply the fear. <clears throat> so shortly after that, I managed to get into one of the main hospitals, and this was the scene that greeted me there. <clears throat> in Ward 1S, we catch up with Mr. Korik, a Yugoslav orthopedic surgeon who has never been so busy. What he is seeing mostly now is what he calls defense injuries. It's a chilling phrase, one the doctors use to describe the shattering damage caused to your arms when you hold them up over your head in an effort to protect yourself from the blows. The blows of the boot, the blows of the log, the blows of the whip, the blows of the rock, the machete, the axe. Now Mr. Corrick has run out of the metal plates and pins he uses to, to set shattered arms and legs, so he can no longer operate other than to clean up the shards of bone. He doesn't know what else to do. In Ward 1S2 are Charity Mutekele and Happiness Mutata, the nurse Georgie goes to their bed ends and takes a quick look at their charts, comparing them against her book. 
Happiness has a fractured right leg and a fractured right arm and no plates or pins, so neither bone is set yet. If they start to mend, then Corrick will have to break them again and reset them. They are PEV victims too. The pace of the terror is so fast now, we are distilling it down to acronyms. PEV, post-election violence. <clears throat> In bed, 1S1 is Grace Gambeza from Mudzi. She's 29, she has septic hematoma on her back and buttocks and fractured arms. DW says the chart, defense wounds. She also has a tiny baby that is still breastfeeding. The nurse brings her in, a bundle wrapped in a white hospital sheet, and tries to hold her to Grace's breast to feed. With two broken arms, Grace cannot hold her baby to her own breast. Grace weeps silently, her broken, unset arms lying uselessly at her sides as the nurse holds the crying baby to her breast and tries to get it to feed. The nurse Georgie looks up from her patient log, shakes her head, blinks rapidly, and takes off her glasses, pretending to clean them. Then, not trusting herself to talk, she turns on her heel and marches off to the next patient. Bed after bed, in ward after ward, on floor after floor, is filled with Robert Mugabe's victims, a hospital full of those he has injured, tortured, and burned out of their homes. As I shuttle between the torture victims, moving from bedside to bedside, long after Georgie has left, and on my return to bedsides here and in other clinics, copiously noting down the details of their experiences, I feel helpless, frustrated, and angry. I'm not sure what I can do to help. My role is unclear to me. I wish there were a better word than victims to describe what these people are. It seems so inert, so passive and weak. And that is not what they are at all. There is a dignity to their suffering. Even as they tell me how they have fled, how they have hidden, how they have been humiliated and mocked, there is little self-pity here. Survivors, I suppose, defines them better. Again and again, as I play stenographer to their suffering, I offer to conceal their names or geographical districts to prevent them being identified. But again and again, they volunteer their names and make sure I spell them correctly. They are proud of their roles in all of this, at the significance of their sacrifice, and they want it recorded. I shrink from generalizing what they have gone through, because it can feed into that sense that this is some undifferentiated, amorphous mass of third-world peasantry, some generic, fungible freeze of suffering, one that animates briefly as you intersect with it, rubbernecking at it, a drive-by misery that disappears as you motor away over the horizon. And for the first time in trying to work out why I'm here and whether it's constructive, I find myself settling on a phrase that I've always avoided, a description I'd found pretentious, but that now seems oddly apt, bearing witness. I'm bearing witness to what's happening here, to the sustained cruelty of it all. I have a responsibility to try to amplify this suffering, this sacrifice, so that it will not have happened in vain. I feel like a prompt at a play. After dozens of hours of this, I often know before they speak what they will say next. I didn't write the words, nor can I change them. But I know what they'll be because I've heard them before because there are now so many who have been through this torture factory, and that's what it is. It is abuse on an industrial scale, with the torturers following a script handed to them from above. There's no spontaneity to this evil. It is ordained from the top. It is hierarchical, planned, and plotted. Mugabe's men have even given it a name. They call it Operation Ngati Pedze Navo. Let us finish them off. 
And just as Operation Gukurahundi, which I witnessed in Matabililand all those years ago, was an operation to shatter the structure of an opposition party, so this one has the same aim. Two operations separated by nearly 25 years, but apparently nothing has changed. Beneath Mugabe's spurious air of correctness, this is the bloody reality. These shattered limbs and broken lives. This, quite simply, is the base upon which the tyrant's power ultimately rests, and it is one of fear. Thanks for listening. The Hay Festival podcast is brought to you by Bailey Gifford Investment Managers. You can find over 8,000 more recordings of Hay Festival events over on the Hay Player on our website. Next week, our guest is Safraz Mansour. <laughs>